You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Good. You know, I struggled with what I'm doing tonight, and when you came out and sang, Holy, 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 it answered the question for me. So let's go home. No. Um, no, it really reaffirmed what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to do something a little different. I hope you're ready to study a little bit. Um, I've been doing narrative. Narrative is easy to do. I'm going to do a little bit more in-depth with you because Sunday I am going to the book of Leviticus, and we're going to take those five offerings that you find beginning in chapter 1, goes through chapter 6, and we're going to look at those five offerings. The burnt offering, that's what we'll look at this Sunday. Then, um, because I leave Monday afternoon, and uh, I'm headed overseas. Um, Brandon is going to preach on the grain offering, and I've given him some material to help him with that. That's, that's not going to be easy. Uh, and then uh, Barry is going to preach on the peace offering, and then I'll be back, and I'm going to preach on the sin offering, and um, then I'll preach on the guilt offering, and that'll be Palm Sunday, and then the next Sunday will be, can you believe that, five Sundays? Um, boy, listen, Christmas is just around the corner, right? (laughs) So that's what we're going to do. I want to take you to the book of Leviticus. So if you'll go to the last chapter of Exodus and the first chapter of Leviticus, they tie in together and I'm going to show you that. And I've been doing a lot of studying the last couple of weeks on what I'm going to be sharing when I'm in Greece. Uh, so my mind has been a lot on that. And uh, let me, I'm going to incorporate some of that as well. When God created the earth and he created the universe, it was as if God created for himself a temple. And in that temple, he placed his two children, Adam and Eve. And every day in the cool of the day, God would come. And let me tell you, whenever you're in the presence of God, there is worship. So God would come, and I, I rather believe that that was, as much as anything, a, a daily worship experience for Adam and Eve to be with God as they walk through his creation. Now, here's the tragedy in all of that. Adam and Eve, uh, because they yielded to sin, they rebelled against God, they were disobedient, they did what God told them not to do, they wrecked and they ruined all of that fellowship that they had with God. They died immediately spiritually. Uh, They would die eventually physically, but immediately they died spiritually. And um, God could not fellowship with them. There was this separation uh, from them. He pulled back. There was nothing that he could do right then, or there was nothing he was going to do right then, and there was nothing man could do at all. So God pulls back, and only on rare occasion do you see God communicate with man. If you're in Genesis, what what happens is, as you go through all of these, this one begot, this one begot, this one begot, this one, you come across a guy by the name of Enoch, and listen to what it says, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not. So there was some kind of communication with Enoch from God. Then he comes back, and he comes to a guy named Noah. 
And he, but Noah is a righteous man. He believes in the Lord. He trusts in God. And uh, God communicates with him. But there's not this constant dwelling with Noah. Like there was when God would come and walk in the cool of the day. You don't get that sense. So the flood comes, and after the flood, then God comes back to another man, and he communicates with this man. This man is named Abraham. Now, we have gone, since I got here, you know, a um, hundred years ago, when, when I got here, we started going through and looking at the life of Abraham. And so we've, we've spent so much time looking at that, but God communicates with him. But you never get the sense, God even comes down and talks to him about what he's going to do with Sodom and Gomorrah, but you never get the sense that God just dwells with him. So he talks, he communicates with Abraham, then with Abraham's son, Isaac, and then God communicates with Isaac's son, Jacob. All of these now Hebrews that God has brought out of Abraham and his descendants, now for 400 years, you don't hear God say anything to them. Until there arises a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, he enslaves these Hebrews, and then they turn and begin to call out to God. And so God's going to respond, just as Barry said a moment ago, on the day that I called on you, you answered. They begin to call out on God. God hears them. Now, they've not been calling out for 400 years, but they have been calling out since they were enslaved. So God is going to now speak to yet another man, and, his guy, and the guy's name is Moses. So he's going to speak to Moses, and Moses is going to go and do God's bidding, and he will bring all of these Hebrews out of Egypt. Now, let me, let me get you in, in your mind, let me get you Exodus and Leviticus here, because now in Exodus, you're going to get law, and uh, yet you're going to get redemption. God's going to redeem his people. He's going to bring them out of the house of slavery. He's going to bring them out of the house of bondage. Now, in all of this, folks, every bit of this is pointing to something greater. It's pointing to something far more significant than what is going on right there. It's a picture of how he will bring us out of the house of uh, the slavery to sin, out of the house of bondage to sin. He's going to bring them out in Exodus, and in Leviticus, he's going to bring them in to worship. He's going to bring them into his presence. And that's, that's, there's going to be the connection right there between the two. That's one of the connections right there. So Moses is going to go in. He's going to bring them out, and then God is going to usher them into his presence, and he's going to do that by way of, of a tabernacle. So God gives to Moses now uh, this plan, this blueprint for a tabernacle. And he says, I want you to build this. So half the book of Exodus is really God giving the blueprint and Moses, you know, calling the people together and then beginning to produce all of this stuff that will build this tabernacle. And you get to Exodus 40. In Exodus 40, you have got them putting all of this tabernacle together. Now, let me just read you the last couple of verses of chapter 40 of Exodus. Then the cloud, they've erected, verse 33, they erected the court around all the tabernacle, the altar, the, hung the veil of the gateway of the door. All of that, it's all finished. Thus Moses finished the work. Then 
The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because of the cloud that settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night, and in the sight of all the house of Israel. Turn the page, chapter 1, verse 1, first word, then. Now in the Hebrew, that's a connecting word. You, we would probably uh, translate it, therefore. Since God did all of that, therefore, now this is what happens. And everything now that comes after this is connected to what went before. And it's that tabernacle where God causes his presence to come. His presence comes down into that place on that tabernacle. Now, let me tell you, the whole of the book of Leviticus was given right there at Sinai when they got this tabernacle done. They're there for about a year or so. So Leviticus now, we normally think, well, is God giving this as they're traveling through the wilderness? No, they've not left Sinai yet. He gives them all of the book of Leviticus while they're there at Sinai, but now the tabernacle is there, and here's the interesting thing. That tabernacle, God's presence comes down on that tabernacle, and Moses is called by God from that tabernacle. Now, I'm going to show you three things that take place in this one verse right here. In verse 1, three things that I see that really lay the whole foundation of the book of Leviticus and what goes on in the book of Leviticus. Because most Christians won't have anything to do with the book of Leviticus. Now, if you're looking at, and I keep, I'll keep referring back to the last part of Exodus, at the end of Exodus chapter 40, you read, there was so much of the glory of God in the tabernacle, Moses was not able to enter. There's a transition being made now. Now, Moses is going to go into that tabernacle, but let me tell you, the transition is beginning to be made that only one guy once a year will ever be able to go into the presence of God and the Holy of Holies. So there's a transition that is taking place. Aaron is going to get suited up beginning in chapter um, 8, 9, and 10. He's going to begin to get suited up, 7, 8, 9, and 10, somewhere right in there. And so he'll begin to become very prominent in going in before the presence of God. Up to this point, it's only been Moses. Now, let me just show you something that I think is interesting. If you look at the tabernacle, there are three places. There's the courtyard. There is the building, and that building is in two parts, the holy place where the where the priests can go and carry out their work, and then the Holy of Holies that only the high priest can go once a year. So there are three parts to it. If you back up and you look at everything that Moses has done at Sinai, there are three parts to it. Uh, there is the foot of the mountain where all the nation is gathered and camped around the foot. That almost represents the courtyard. Do you remember that Moses and the elders went up into the cloud and there they had a meal and they could look up and they saw the feet of God. That's all they could see, the feet of God. 
uh, but they went up into that cloud. That almost is like the holy place. But only Moses would go on up into the presence of God himself. And so Moses would go up into the presence of God, and there God would speak to him. And you remember what God said, I spoke to him. He was my servant, and I spoke to him uh, as a man speaks to a man face to face. Well, Moses goes on up, the only one, that's like the holy of holies, into the presence of God. And the Bible says this, that it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, this is Exodus 34, verse 29, with the two tables of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. Now, what that's going to tell you and what that tells me is this. It tells me that when we get into the presence of God, there's a change in life. The other thing it tells me that is fascinating is this. Now, if you're reading there, you read this. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. I have found in life that those who spend more time in the presence of God and whose lives are changed because of that, are least aware of it. Let me put it this way. Those who are filled most with the Spirit of God are the least aware of it. Those who strut around and let you know how spiritual they are probably spend very little time in the presence of God. Amen. So, there's Moses, there's the presence of God, and here are the three things I want you to look at. Number one is God's presence. That's what's being said here. In that one verse, then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. That's where Leviticus begins. It begins literally with God's presence now among his people. This hasn't been this way since Adam and Eve. Uh, God's presence is there in the midst of his people. Uh, you come to that passage at the end of, uh, of Exodus there, and you've got all of the people there. They've all gathered around that tabernacle. And as they're there, they can see in that tabernacle, they can see the cloud by day, and at night they can see the tabernacle illuminated with the Shekinah glory of God. So there what you've got is you've got the presence of God. And the presence of God is there in their midst. Now, here's what it says in those last verses of Exodus. It's saying this that throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, uh, the sons of God would sit out. When the presence of God moved, they moved. But if the cloud did, was not taken up, they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. So if the presence of God stayed, they stayed. Now, here you get over to, let me, let me take you over to uh, Numbers chapter 2. Because in Numbers chapter 2, chapter 9. Numbers chapter 9, what you're going to find is you're going to see that thing move again. At the command in chapter 9 of Numbers, now this is where they leave Mount Sinai. At the command of the Lord, they camped, and at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the Lord's charge according to the command of the Lord through Moses. That whole section there deals with the cloud and the tabernacle. So you've bookend the whole of the book of Leviticus 
with the discussion of the moving of the cloud, which will move the tabernacle, which represents the presence of God, which tells me don't move anywhere unless you're sure you're moving in the presence of God. That's the step. Don't take a step unless you're moving with the presence of God. So, there's the presence of God there. Look on back, since you're in Numbers, look on back to chapter 2, because in chapter 2, you're going to get how these tribes camped around the tabernacle. It gives you all of that in chapter 2. So, here is God in, in his presence in that tabernacle, and there are, as if this were the tabernacle right here, and it was a rect- rectangle, there were three tribes to the north, three to the south, three to the west, three to the east. So that the entire tribe, uh, uh, so that the entire nation of Israel camped all the way around the tabernacle. So that all the tribes could see the presence of God. They could see the cloud by day. They could see the fire that burned in the tabernacle by night. Now, they used that tabernacle for 500 years. It was with them in their midst until they got into the land, and it was put eventually at Shiloh or Shiloh. And there at Shiloh, you, you read eventually, that's where it pretty well ends up there. Then David is going to come eventually and get the Ark of the Covenant, and he's going to take it to Jerusalem. You know that story. But for 500 years, they are there with that tabernacle, and on that tabernacle is the presence of God. So that, that's the first verse of Leviticus right there. They use that for 500 years, and God comes next to Solomon, and he tells Solomon, I want you to build me a temple. And he gives him all the dimensions and the blueprint for the temple, and Solomon builds God a temple. Now that lasts until the Babylonians come, and they destroy the city of Jerusalem, and they destroy the temple, and they take off all those in Judah into Babylonian captivity, and Babylon is swallowed up by the Persian Empire, and Cyrus, a pagan king used by God, lets the Jews go back to the land of Israel after 70 years of captivity. They go back. Ezra is there. Joshua is there. It's a whole nother Joshua. Uh, Joshua is there. Nehemiah comes onto the scene, and they're going to rebuild the temple. Uh, they're going to rebuild the temple, and as they rebuild the temple, it is such a pitiful facsimile that the old men who remembered Solomon's temple would look at it, the Bible says, and they begin to cry because it was nothing in comparison to what the temple of Solomon had been. Well, you come down to 19 B.C., 19 years before the birth of Christ. And uh, 19 years before the birth of Christ, in order to endear himself to the Jews who royally hated him, Herod said, I'm going to rebuild the temple. And he builds it to an incredible scale. So that when you get into the opening chapters of John's gospel, Jesus, at about 30 years of age, walks into that temple. It's the temple that Herod has been building since about 19 B.C. So he's been building it almost 50 years by the time Jesus walks in that. 
Now that must be some more something else to see. But he would continue to build that temple until 63 A.D. All all those years, over 70 years, building that temple, and it would stand complete for about seven years until Titus and three Roman legions break through the walls of Jerusalem, and they go directly to the temple. They strip it of its gold. They tear it completely apart, and they set the city of Jerusalem on fire. It stands for a little less than seven years completed, and then it's destroyed. Now, I want you to remember that because I'm going to come back to that at the end of this, but that's what happens to the temple through the years, and it's interesting. It's interesting that the Jews had a temple. We know God gave them the instruction, but do you know who the greatest temple builders were in the ancient world? The Greeks. This is where I'm headed out, uh, right there. The temple of Athena, the Parthenon on the Acropolis, uh, considered to be the greatest building ever built by man. Pericles, I believe it was, was the government official that started that in about the 480s B.C., and they built that for Athena, who was the goddess of wisdom and um, That is just one of thousands of temples that the Greeks built. That's just one up on the Acropolis. There are many other. There's the temple to Nike up there, the temple to Poseidon, the temple of the Vestal Virgins are up there. And um, you've got all these other temples built up on that hill. And if you stand on that hill and you look down over into the Agora, you can see all the temples that were built down there. Now, that's interesting to me that the Greeks would build all of these temples. You know who came behind the Greeks? The Romans. And the Romans would probably be the second greatest temple builders in the ancient worlds. Uh, you, you could go to the, temple, the unfinished temples of Baalbek uh, that the Romans built during the time of Nero. Uh, unbelievable, the stones there, the largest stones they've ever seen cut in the world are there at Baalbek. You had a temple to Aphrodite, uh, the, the goddess of sex, uh, a temple there to Zeus, the god of power, and a temple there to Bacchus, the god, god of wine. That sums up the Roman Empire right there. That's some, see also America 2020. So they built. Now, here's the question. What, why, why are these pagan civilizations building all of these temples? Because when God created man, he created in man a hunger in the heart of man for the presence of God. And in their paganism, though they could not explain it theologically, they hungered to be in the presence of God. They longed to be. Leviticus starts out with the presence of God. That is the longing of man's heart. Now, let me give you the second thing, and the second thing is this, God's word, God's presence, God's word. When you come to this verse, then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Now, when I read that, I thought to myself, that is an odd way. You don't read that often, that the Lord called to him from the tent of meeting. 
God's presence was in that tent, and Moses could hear that the voice was coming from inside the tent. God called to him from the tent. But as I began to look at that, let me tell you what Scripture does. Scripture will say this, that God called to Moses from the bush. God called to Moses from the cloud. God called out to Moses from the mountaintop. And that God called to Moses from out of the tent. Now watch this. When God called to Moses out of the bush, he gave him his name. We translate it or transliterate it, Jehovah. He gave him, he gave him his name, I am that I am. He gave to him essentially his character. I am that I am. I have no beginning. I have no end. There is no one other than me. I am God. There is no other God. He gave to Moses his character from out of the bush. He called to him out of the bush, and he gave him his name. He gave him his character. When he called to him out of the cloud, he gave him the covenant that you read in chapter 19 and chapter 20 with Israel. When he called to him out of the mountain, he gave him his commandments. And when he calls to him out of the tent, he gives to him a charge. Here is the book of Leviticus. Here's my charge. This is what my people are to do. So it's an interesting way. You have to watch when you're studying Scripture. You have to watch for these things because I'm going to show you now. Go to chapter 4, verse 1, and look at how it's introduced there. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, that's what I expected to find in Leviticus 1.1, but that's not what I found because there's something else going on uh, that's happening there, and he's giving Moses a charge for the entirety of this book for the entirety of the life of his people. But you come to chapter 4, verse 1, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, you read that in practically every chapter of Leviticus, you read it 32 times. What if I were to stand up here and say, then the Lord spoke to Moses, uh, saying, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, then the Lord spoke to Moses. You begin to say, good night in the morning. Come on, come on. I'm going to start counting these things off with you. And um, you want to get, but that's exactly what the Holy Spirit is wanting you to do. He's wanting you to understand this is the word of God. God gives you his word. He gives us not only his presence, but he gives us his word as well. Now, most people will skip the book of Leviticus, which is a tragedy. Uh, they'll skip it because this, this is the way they'll think. On the one hand, they'll say, well, golly, that's so boring and I can't figure it out and none of it makes any kind of sense to me. Or on the other hand, we'll say, well, you know what? That's all law and it's all legalism and I, I, we live under grace and none of that applies to us. Oh, boy, that's news. For God to put an entire book in there that we would look at and say, ah, none of that matters anymore. The first seven chapters really deal with sacrifice and what you sacrifice and what the sacrifice is for, and it is pointing to something greater, which you know, it's pointing to the coming Messiah. He is showing them in word picture what Messiah is actually going to do. And let me tell you something, sacrifice is critical for your salvation. So don't tell me that that's not important. Then you come to chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, and what you're coming to there is you're coming to this whole thing of mediator. He's going to deal with Aaron. He's going to deal with the priesthood. He's going to talk about them because if you're going to have a sacrifice, you're going to also have to have a mediator 
someone to offer the sacrifice, somebody to go into the presence of God. I had to have somebody go into the presence of God for me and his name. Listen, Paul gives it, Paul gives it to Timothy and he says, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. So chapters 8, 9, and 10 are telling me awful lot about a mediator. And then I'm going to pick it up in chapter 11, and I'm going to go through chapter 16, and it's going to talk about all this stuff to deal with purity. And I want to tell you something. If there's one thing that we can use, not just in America today, but a good dose of in the church today, and it is a call back to a life of purity. All of that deals with purity. And then when you're going to pick this thing up in around chapter 17 to the end of the book, it's going to deal with holiness, 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 holiness. And God calls me and he says, you are to be holy because I am holy. The whole of that comes from 17 to 27. Is it, this is the work of the sanctification of God in the believer's life. Make me more like my mediator. Jesus. Y'all just sit there. I wish y'all, listen, take a peel next week and get excited. Get, bring in some Red Bull next week and drink it. Well, that's it. That's, that's the word. There's his presence. There's the word. Here's the last thing. And the third thing is this, and that's his glory because his glory is all through this whole thing. In fact, let me do this. Let me take you back to chapter 19 of Exodus. And let me show you something back there in 19, chapter 19 of Exodus. Uh, They get there to Sinai. God tells them, consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Now, there's his presence. He's going to speak. But what they're going to see and what's going to scare the wits out of them is his glory. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was all in smoke. All of this happens to be ways that Moses is writing under the inspiration of Scripture that the Lord is showing his people his glory. There is smoke now. All this smoke, not cloud, but now this is smoke because the Lord descended in fire. So you've got this fire that's burning. You've got all this smoke that's billowing out. And the smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. Now there's an earthquake. The whole mountain begins to shake. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, you can go to the 12th chapter of Hebrews, and you can read this very thing. Uh, they hear this trumpet and it gets, it's this blaring trumpet and it gets louder and it gets louder and it gets louder. Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. Now it's thundering. Uh, You hear this trumpet blaring, but now you've got this rolling of thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Now, you read over in Hebrews 12 what you're not told here. Over in Hebrews 12, it tells you that Moses was scared. The people had already told him, look, we don't want to hear any more of this. Uh, we, we, we can't stand this. You, you go up there and talk to him. 
But Moses said when he went up, he was terrified. He was terrified as well. Now, there's the glory of God. Now, you get to the last chapter of Exodus, back to Exodus 40. What is it that comes down on that tabernacle? The cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You read down in verse 38, for throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. So now you've got here, you have got the glory of God now on this tabernacle. His presence is there. His word has come out to Moses, but the glory of God is on that thing as well. Now, let me just, let me just put that here and let me talk to you about something else uh, and let me, let, me, let me come back, and I'll tie all that back up together. When you walked into the gate, say this was the gate, the opening to the courtyard of the tabernacle, or when you walked into the temple, Solomon's temple or Herod's temple, the first thing that you would come to there was the great bronze altar. The great bronze altar of God was there. That's where all these sacrifices are going to take place. I'll begin to talk about that Sunday morning. I'm going to pick up with verse 2 Sunday morning of Leviticus 1. That was there because it was a visual understanding that a sacrifice had to be made. Just beyond that bronze altar, the great altar, was this huge laver of water, this big, huge basin of water. And there the priests would go and they would wash themselves. So here's a sacrifice that had to be made. And by the way, let me, let me, I'll tell you this Sunday morning, they took the blood of those sacrifices and it says they sprinkled, but the Hebrew word is far stronger than that. They took it, they caught all the blood from a bull and they would put it in a bucket and they would throw it on the side of the altar so that when you walked in and you saw that altar, what you saw is you saw blood all the way around it. It was a visual sacrifice. The blood stood for death. Something has died. Something has been offered on this. You, you go now and you're cleansed and only then could you walk into the holy place to where you would come to the veil, which behind the veil is the glory of God. You see the picture here that's being drawn? Everything has a meaning. Everything is important. So that's, that's what's happening with all of this. So, so here's the glory of God. God's glory is there. It's all over this. Now, there's that altar, but now watch it what Aaron has to do. If you've got your Bibles, go to Leviticus chapter 9. Because before anything can happen, the high priest is going to have to offer up a sacrifice for himself. Why? Because he's a sinner. Aaron was a sinner. So in chapter 9, he begins that. You begin to read where Aaron offers up a sacrifice for himself. He's consecrated, and now he can come and offer up a sacrifice for the people. And so he comes and offers up the sacrifice for the people. And in verse 22, we read this. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. 
And when they came out and blessed the people, watch this, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Here's the glory of God again. And out of the glory of God, verse 24, the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. Here the glory of God comes out of that tent, out of that holy of holies, comes out and consumes the sacrifice. It's a way of saying, I approve, I accept what has taken place here. You did, and you did good. You did good, is what he's saying. Now, there is the glory of God, the same glory of God that came down on Mount Sinai, the same glory of God that came down on the tabernacle, now is the same glory of God that appears to the people, and out of that glory comes the fire that consumes the sacrifice, and God says, I accept this for your sins. Now, what in the world is all of that? Well, it is this. It is a picture that one day God himself would become flesh and would tabernacle among us. He would come, his presence, and would live among us. And we would behold his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. We would behold his glory. God longed, longed to restore the relationship between fallen man and himself. It's as if, as I've been studying this, it's as if God was chomping at the bits to say, I want to get back in your presence. I want to get back in your presence. I want to get back in your presence. And I'm going to do all of this that's going to make it possible that I can get back in your presence. And when he came, the final sacrifice, the final high priest, the final mediator, to give himself as a sacrifice, he revealed the glory of God. Now, let me, let me read something to you. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You, you can write it down, but let me just read it. I'm there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light sh- that light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So that when you see Christ, what you see is you see the glory of God. Now, let me take you all the way back to where I started. Because when I started, I started in a garden. And I shared with you that that it seemed to be that God had created earth and the universe as a temple. And he placed his children in the temple and he would come with his presence and his glory into that temple daily to be with them. 
Their sin destroyed that. God gives a plan to Solomon. The Babylonians destroy that. They come back. They rebuild. Herod rebuilds. That is destroyed by the Romans, but it doesn't make any difference because now God reveals what his plan has been all along. And his plan all along has been, I've got a different temple. And it is a place where I will dwell for eternity. And that temple is you. So that no longer do you wait for him to come and walk with you. He now lives always in you. And we don't even have to have a temple, a building. We don't even have to be this because our God doesn't come to this. He comes to this. He comes here to us. And that someone is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, you look at him, he's the face of the glory of God. And it's Christ. Paul says, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives within me. And if Christ is living in me, that must mean the glory of God is in here. And it's to shine out. And that's why Paul comes and he says, be blameless, innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.